Hi everyone. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to let you know, I uh, was experimenting with a new setup for recording, hoping to reduce some background noise, which I think overall has worked, but in the process I had to make some adjustments during recording which have left some noise artifacts in there that I was not able to remove, and I didn't have time to re-record those sections. So, uh, Apologies for that. Eventually, I will probably re-record the episode and repost a clean one, um, and we can all laugh about this. So, stay tuned for the episode. Philomer, the king of the Goths, found among his people certain witches. He expelled them from the midst of his people, and compelled them to wander in exile far from his army. There the unclean spirits who beheld them bestowed their embraces upon them, and begat this savage race, a stunted, foul, and puny tribe, scarcely human, and having no language save one that bore only slight resemblance to human speech. Hello and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. This is episode 6, The Whirlwind of Nations. That right there is what we call a cold open, ladies and gentlemen. That is the origin story that Jordanes offers for the Huns. It tells us nothing particularly useful in a practical sense, but it does convey something about the way the Huns were perceived, even 150 years later when Jordanes was writing. Did I mention that Jordanes was a goth? In almost all of the classical sources, the peoples of northern Europe are portrayed as attractive. They may be uncouth, they may be violent, their language is without poetry and they are not to be trusted, but they are handsome. Gauls and Goths and Alemanni and Belgians and Saxons all share this. The noble savage, the rugged, wild specimen of a man, tall, blonde, direct, who fights fiercely and whose inevitable defeat is to be ever so slightly regretted. There's a statue called the Dying Gaul in the Capitoline Museum in Rome, which depicts a mortally wounded Celtic warrior, hair wild, but his face is noble, and his body is every bit as perfect as any of his Greek or Latin counterparts. In the sources, though, the Huns are different. The Huns are described as ugly, their language is an assault on the ears. Their bodies are short and squat. A sense of horror comes through thousands of years later, and is pretty much universal across all sources. Setting aside all the exaggerations that real historians are always warning us about, it is still abundantly clear that the Huns are something new. So why should that be? The Empire was a cosmopolitan place with dozens of ethnicities represented within it. Racism, as we understand it, based on physical traits, was largely unknown. Learned men may wonder why people from Africa had darker skin, while people in the North had lighter, but those traits had no bearing on those people's value. The difference between a Roman and a barbarian was in behavior, not appearance. The Romans considered their culture superior and looked down on any who lived in any other way, but what you looked like was pretty much irrelevant. So what made the Huns so different? 
there are a few specific things that may help explain some of their psychological impact. Barbarians, like I said, were people who did not live or think in a Roman way, and especially could not live under Roman law, and the Huns were very much outside the Roman way. In the same chapter that our cold open came from, Jordanes relays that the Huns displayed deeply cut faces, which suggests some kind of ritual scarification being done, which would have been far outside Roman norms. Archaeology also makes clear that at least some Huns practiced head-binding, which is the deliberate manipulation of the growth of children's skulls, in order to make their heads elongated and higher crown than they would normally be. The Huns' partner peoples, the Alans, also bound their infants' heads. There's a grave in France from the 4th century that gives examples of that. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, as well as some about Hunnic skulls being found, too. The practice pops up all over the world at various times and places, but it would have been mostly unknown to the Romans. Appearing suddenly with scarred faces and bizarrely shaped heads, the monstrous reputation of the Huns becomes a little bit more understandable. Added to their seeming invincibility, and it's not hard to believe that these were some kind of supernatural force, not just a new border tribe. But who the heck were these people, really? Where did they come from? What made them so special that they could overwhelm just about any enemy that stood before them? This episode is going to deal mainly with that question. In the next episode, we'll pick up our narrative parallel to the Goths thread. I'm hopeful that with the groundwork we've already done in that long series, we'll be able to deal with the Huns a little bit more quickly. So here we go, wading out into the question of the Huns' origins, and I find myself in deep water right off the bat. The origins of the Huns has been controversial since the literal beginning. Jordanes tells us only that the Huns originated somewhere east of the Maoetic Marshes, which means east of the Sea of Azov. General consensus among modern scholars is that before they made themselves known to the Goths, they lived in the Kuban River Basin, at the northern feet of the Caucasus, though they probably originated elsewhere further east. How much further east? Who knows? There's a controversial idea that the answer might be as far east as it's possible to go without actually being China. I'll come back to that in a bit, but I'm not quite ready to get into those particular weeds. What we know for sure is that the Huns were a people who originated somewhere in Central Asia. We know that they were primarily horse archers, as had been and would continue to be pretty much standard for people of the steppes. They were pastoralists, at least when they first appeared in the Roman radar. So they depended on livestock and hunting for their living, and showed no talent or interest in agriculture. There's a famous description that might help us picture them. Quote, he was short of stature, with a broad face and a large head. Eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and a swarthy complexion showing evidence of his ancestry. End quote. That sounds like it may be describing a person of mostly East Asian origin, but that might just be because we're expecting it to. Actually, looking at it again, it's not really all that helpful. Even less helpful are the linguistics. In a lot of scholarship about the Dark Ages, linguistics can give us a general idea about movements and relationships between all of these migrating people. 
And often, when it sounds like I'm talking about an ethnic group, I'm actually talking about a group of people who share a language. I gave you a big chunk of Gothic vocabulary in the first episode, right? You know how many Hunnic words we know for sure? One. One word. Strava. Means funeral. Linguists struggle to slide that single word into a family tree. Plenty of confident guesses has been made. It could be Iranian, it could be Turkic, Mongol, Siberian, none of the above. The word Hun itself probably isn't a Hunnic word either, but a Persian word meaning enemy that the Huns co-opted as a tactic of intimidation. It's frustrating, I know. It gives historians something to publish papers about and stay employed, so that's good, I guess, on the basis that more scholarship is better than less. But it makes it very difficult to tease out any kind of coherent narrative for the purposes of a basement history podcast. It also means that I'm not going to be casting movie actors for the Huns. The odds of running into a John Wayne as Genghis Khan debacle are too great. And there aren't that many Huns I'm going to specifically name anyway. Now, about those weeds I mentioned. I'm in deep water and thick weeds. Basically, I'm in a rice paddy. The idea that keeps coming up is that the Huns are descended from people that had been harassing the Chinese earlier in their history. It's an idea that gives the story of the Huns a more global sweep. The people in question are called the Xiongno. Pronunciation will be a problem here. I think I've done my due diligence, and I beg your patience. It is probably not going to get better as time goes on. This theory has been around since the 1750s and has had its ups and downs. The Xiongno had a complicated relationship with China over several centuries, before withdrawing from the dragon's sight toward the end of the first century CE. The theory goes that they eventually found their way across the Kazakh steppes, and from there into the lands of the Goths and the Romans. At first, that seems absurd. There's 200 years between the disappearance of the Xiongno from China and the appearance of the Huns. What were they doing in the meantime? Is it reasonable for a group to maintain its cohesion for that long under the circumstances? Are we sure we're even talking about a single ethnic group rather than just a loose conglomeration of tribes? Spoiler, we're not sure about that for either the Huns or the Xiongno. The last 50 years or so, the theory has generally been down in the rankings of academic acceptance. Recently, though, there's been some work in archaeology and genetics that might inject a little life back into the Xiongno theory. Burials connected to them suggest that they were fairy heterogeneous mixture of Siberian, Mongol, and Caucasian people. Hunnic burials show some similar characteristics. Some archaeologists point to cauldron-like vessels that are found in Xiongno burials, and similar vessels found in Hunnic sites. Others point out that while they are similar, they're not exactly the same. They're found in different types of sites and contexts, and no transitional artifact meaning something that suggests a gradual shift between the two over time has ever been found. The Xiongno theory is more accepted today as genetic evidence accumulates, but there are still arguments made ferociously on both sides and nothing resembling consensus. Commentators at the time had another suggestion, which is even more outlandish, but also more fun. The Masagetai, a Iranian people, who occupied territories east of the Caspian Sea, which nowadays we would call the Stans, Uzbekistan, Kurdistan, etc. The Masagetai were known to the classical Greeks, and were infamous in Persian history. 
most especially for defeating and killing Cyrus the Great under their great queen Tamaris in 530 BCE. I have already said I'm not going to get distracted by the Persians, so if you want to know more about that, go to find Dan Carlin's series on the Achaemenid Persians on Hardcore History. I think it's still up with the free casts, and it's awesome, both in the sense of being fun and in the sense of being, like, 12 hours long. Anyway, Procopius and Evagrius, both historians writing around the middle of the 6th century, promoted the Massagetae theory. Two problems with it, though. First, the time gap between the Massagetae and the Huns is even bigger than the one with the Xiongno. The second is that in ancient historians have a maddening habit of using the same names for different cultures across time, based on geographic locations. So the term Scythian, for example, is used to refer to any group inhabiting Scythia, regardless of language or culture. So the Goths are called Scythians, until they are driven out by the Huns, and then the Huns become Scythians. They do this because history was a literary endeavor, and the goal was to demonstrate how educated you were to your audience, and that you had read all the right books and could make all the right references. And that habit makes one suspect that the ancient historians are getting confused by their own sources. The Huns certainly bore no relationship to the Scythians that the Greeks had described in earlier works, but they got that name anyway. It's very confusing and a perfect example of the danger of writing history as literature. So my point is that Procopius and Evagrius may be connecting the Huns to the Massagetae just because they were known to come from that neck of the woods, and were well known because of the Persian connection. Not much else to go on there. I said I didn't want to get caught in these kind of weeds, but I have just given you about a thousand words that could easily be replaced with, uh So let's move on to the actual story. We're going to rewind our narrative all the way back to around 370. Ready? Here we go. Regardless of where they had come from, the first inkling the Romans had of the Hun threat reached the Danube garrison sometime in the 370 CE. Something was happening on the eastern edge of the Goth territories. Around 370, as we know, the Huns began to assault the Grithungi. The king of the Grithungi was Ermanaric, who you will remember from the excellent notes you were taking during episode 2. Ermanaric had ordered the execution of a woman named Sunilda, apparently in place of her husband who had rebelled against him. The husband had then scarpered, her brothers took umbrage, as one might when one's sister has been torn apart by horses, and took their revenge by stabbing Ermanaric in the side, though the wound was not immediately fatal. It did mean the king was unprepared for the rigors of war with the Huns, though, and stood no chance against them. Ermanaric probably did exist, as he appears in both Jordanes and Ammianus Marcellinus, but the details we have to take well-seasoned with lots of salt. Ermanaric's opposite number among the Huns is only named by Jordanes, who introduces a character called Balambur, the king of the Huns, but that title is almost certainly overstated. I'll talk more about social structure a bit later on, but the idea of a single king of the Huns only developed much later. Balambur is either a conglomeration of several leaders, the only leader whose name Jordanes had heard, or completely made up. I imagine the Grithungi who faced them in person were not terribly concerned about accurately reporting their attackers' names. The defeat was swift and crushing. Some of the Grithungi fled westward to seek refuge with their kin, the Tervingi. 
Others were brought under the Hun's direct control. It wouldn't be long before Gothic names began to appear in the lists of Hun military leaders. Very quickly, they extended their control to the Dniester River. The Very quickly, they extended their control to the Dniester River, the territory of the Tervingai, and Athanaric. All of this should sound very familiar, which is why I'm kind of motoring through it. The Romans at first dismissed reports of all this as irrelevant to their interests, and it wasn't an unreasonable position. Barbarians were always fighting with each other. Roman foreign policy depended on it and encouraged it. Bickering barbarians are much easier to manage than united barbarians, and if anything, the Goths had been far too uppity for quite some time. Besides, communication being what they were, most wars were over long before news of them reached the Roman frontier, like the light of a nova reaching Earth centuries after the event. That attitude was perfectly understandable, but in this case, perfectly incorrect. Athanaric, as we know, did his best to defend his people, but it was no good, and Fritigern took over and led the Goths to the river. We talked about what happened next at length in those episodes, so I won't rehash it all now. But why was it happening? Why were the Huns doing this? There are a few possibilities. First, climate change. If we accept that the Huns are similar to other pastoral people of Central Asia, then they would typically follow well-known rhythms in moving their flocks and herds. Changes that could disrupt those rhythms may push them to seek out greener pastures, literally. It's very difficult to prove or disprove this one, since weather data for 4th century Uzbekistan is, weirdly, not widely available. Second possibility, pressure from other peoples further east. The Huns are often described as the first of a series of dominoes that push other groups to overwhelm the Roman Empire. I believe I have made that put that metaphor together. Well, what if there's another domino before them? That's an intriguing thought, but as we'll see, the Huns were really, really, really good at war, and really, really scary. What would the people that could have driven them out of their lands look like? The fragmentary history of Priscus suggested that the Huns stood at the end of a long line of dominoes, who were started on the move by a brood of griffins, hell-bent on devouring every human being on Earth. I mean, I'm sold. Done. There it is. There's our explanation, everybody. Griffins. I mean, fracking griffins, man. Third possibility, and my actual horse in this race is that it may be the material wealth of the Goths was visibly increasing thanks to their interactions with the Romans. By the 360s and 70s, that wealth may have been filtering out to the furthest reaches of Gothia, to be seen, traded, and envied by the neighbors. I posted a picture to the Dark Ages pod Instagram, yep, got an Instagram now, of the patera, a ritual dish that was found in Romania. The wealth of the Goths was not on a par with the Empire, but that dish shows it wasn't nothing. Eventually, the neighbors, among them the Huns, decided to go ahead and take some of that wealth for themselves. And in their raiding and conquering, they moved closer and closer to the Danube, and the richness of the spoils increased, drawing the Huns ever forward. This explanation tracks, too, in an odd way, with the story given by Priscus that Hun hunters followed a divine doe across the Maotic marshes, and then, quote, The unknown land of Scythia disclosed itself to them, and the doe disappeared. 
The Huns, who had been wholly ignorant that there was another world beyond the Maotis, were now filled with admiration for the Scythian land, and like a whirlwind of nations, they swept across the great swamp. Eventually, and inevitably, the Huns reached the Danube frontier in person. They weren't, though, at this point a single entity. The shape of early Hun society is difficult to see from this distance. It seems at this stage the Hun horde was organized similarly to a lot of Germanic groups, being a loose confederation of highly independent tribes. Those tribes worked in concert as far as was beneficial, but were just as likely to compete as to cooperate, and decisions were made by a committee of chieftains. That led to a large number of free actors roaming around in and outside Hunnic territory, demonstrated by the presence of at least some Hun units at the Battle of Adrianople in 378, fighting on the Gothic side. We don't know how many of them there were or their exact role in the battle, but we know they were there. Groups also definitely took part in the wide-ranging pillage of the Balkans that followed Adrianople. It's clear even at this time that the Hunnic Confederation either recruited or enslaved, or probably both, other tribal groups. Most of them were Germanic, including the defeated Grithungi, but some of them were for further east, Iranic peoples closer to the Caspian Sea. In the post-Adrianople raids, sources mention Skiri, Carpadoci, and Alans specifically as peoples subject to Hun domination and Jordanis provide several other examples that live back in Scythia. Alans, by the way, seem to be everywhere. Almost every single barbarian army has Alans with them. Aside from small bands that joined in raiding or appeared alongside other tribes here and there, the main body of the Huns stayed on the north side of the Danube. As a result, then, there's a gap in our knowledge. We can't be completely sure about what exactly was happening beyond the Danube after Adrianople. It's reasonable to assume the Huns were busily consolidating their power and making sure that the various subject peoples were cowed enough to be not a danger to them, and begin integrating them into their armies. There were certainly a significant number of those peoples by now, because the core Hun group wasn't large enough to fully replace the resident people. Nor would that have been desirable. Someone still needed to do the farming and crafting in order to keep the hordes supplied, and the Huns certainly weren't going to do it. That's a common misconception with any of these large movements of barbarian peoples. It's easy to picture it as a wave that washes over and sweeps away all of the old inhabitants completely, and chronicles often present it that way. But the chroniclers are all of the landowning class, which were actually often swept away and replaced, and were working with the secondary goal of demonstrating that these invasions were the punishment of God for the empire's various sins. Those two biases go a long way to explain the catastrophism, which is a word I might have just made up, of those writers of late antiquity. I'm not saying it wasn't scary or that thousands upon thousands were not robbed or raped or made homeless. All of that's true. What I'm saying is that these aren't billiard balls knocking each other around, forcing an entire people out of an area, or ants overwhelming and devouring a wounded beetle. These movements of people in this period are more like water being poured into buckets that are too small to accommodate it. Some of it is going to be displaced and spill out into another bucket. I might have needed to spend more time on those metaphors. What I'm saying is that the common people of an area were probably mostly left in place, with a new ruling elite of Huns being layered on top of it. 
It was almost 20 years before the Huns showed up in the Empire again. It may have been an attack of opportunity, since in the winter of 395 the Danube froze. The Huns took advantage of the moment to ride across and do some plunder. They ravaged Moesia and pushed westward into Pannonia, and then left when they could carry no more booty. Reading through the history of this period, I mean, it's really hard to imagine how anything productive could have been happening in Moesia after a few rounds of this. The poor little province got it in the neck at the end of the 4th century, and it wasn't going to get better anytime soon. We've already seen it with the Goths. You may remember that 395 was also the year that Alaric raised his people in revolt that took him down into Greece to face off against Stilicho. This Hun invasion was why. The lands the Romans had given to the Goths were not safe, and Alaric went looking for a more secure place. But as bad as it was, this invasion into Moesia was not the Huns' biggest attack that year. Instead, almost simultaneously, large armies poured over the Caucasus in the east, where they were absolutely unexpected. They overran Armenia and turned west, plundering deep into Anatolia, Turkey. St. Jerome, who was living in Bethlehem at the time and so had access to fresh news, wrote about them. Quote, Behold the wolves, not of Arabia, but of the north, were let loose upon us. From the far-off rocks of Caucasus, and in a little while overran the great provinces. How many monasteries were captured? How many streams reddened by human blood? Antioch was besieged, other cities washed by the rivers. Flocks of captives dragged away. They filled the whole earth with slaughter and panic. The Roman army was away in Italy and detained in Italy in the civil wars. May Jesus avert such beasts from the Roman world in the future. End quote. As he said, the Huns penetrated all the way to the great provincial capital of Antioch and laid siege to it, but were unable to capture it. They were finally defeated the next year by the eunuch general Eutropius. You remember him? Old droopy dog? He was made consul that year as a reward, but the defeat did nothing to reduce the Huns' reputation for ferocity, terror, and sheer nerve. That these two raids happened within a few years of each other might suggest a conscious coordination, but I think the opposite's true. At the end of the 4th century, the Huns were undisputedly masters of the steppe from the Carpathians to beyond the furthest edges of the Black Sea, but they were still not a single political unit. No source names any single leader for any of these raids. The original model of fluid confederation remained in place, with tribes or clans forming and breaking alliances as was expedient. A group might come together for a large-scale coordinated invasion, but once the plunder had been divvied up, each tribe went their own way. It's reasonable to guess that the Huns who lived nearer the Danube raided into Thrace, and those that lived nearer the mountains raided into Anatolia, with no knowledge of each other's actions. That would begin to change, as the influence of all that plundered wealth began to make itself felt in Hun society, but the effects were not quite visible yet. Before finishing up for today, let's talk a bit more about what we know about that society and the material culture of the Huns, because it's interesting in its own right, and because it's a neat case study of the effects of contact between civilizations at widely different levels of development. For this section, I've relied heavily on a book called The Huns by E.A. Thompson, which is part of Blackwell's Peoples of Europe series. I'd already mentioned the Huns were pastoralists. That is, they depended on herded animals for most of their livelihood. Roman commentators note that their herds included every kind of domestic mammal, horses, cattle, goats, sheep, in vast numbers. 
Their clothing, we're told, was made from skins and linen, and worn until it disintegrated off of them. That linen's important, because at no point in their history did the Huns settle down and become farmers, and without farms there is no flax, and without flax there is no linen. So we have to conclude that from the beginning the Huns were engaged in trade with their more settled neighbors. That's a pattern you'll see over and over again. Raiding cultures alternate between predatory and commercial relations in order to acquire the things they need to survive. The Huns needed their neighbors in order to maintain their way of life, and they needed them to seem mostly functional and prosperous. The nature of a pastoral economy means that we have to adjust our image of these people. The word horde evokes an image of a vast mass of people all moving together. I see in my mind's eye a sea of tents with hundreds of thousands of individual men, women, and children milling around among them, along with huge herds of animals stretching to the horizon. Everything partially hidden by the dust kicked up by thousands on thousands of feet. But in such a scene of the entire nation gathered and moving as one, that's just wrong. Keeping thousands of grazing animals together in one place not only would be a managerial nightmare, it would immediately outstrip the fodder that the land could provide. And so as a result, Dr. Thompson calculates that the probable number of fighting men a Hunnic tribe could put in the field would be about 1,200. That's based partly on the considerations of finding enough fodder to support the herd. So we're looking at groups of 1,200 fighters or less banding together on an ad hoc basis to form these famous hordes. When not gathered for war, then, we have to imagine the Huns in much smaller, independent groups moving their animals from pasture to pasture. This is both a predictable lifestyle, as the seasons come and go, in familiar rhythm, and a tenuous one, as the quality of the grass and its ability to support a family might vary widely from year to year. It's a life that requires the herdsman and woman to spend days at a time in the saddle, and based on our sources, the Huns seemed almost glued to their horses, surprising Roman visitors by eating, drinking, and holding high-level meetings and councils while mounted. The vast superiority of the Hun cavalry grows out of this reality of daily life. None of their western adversaries could afford to spend so much time riding. I don't know if you remember, but when we were talking about the Grithungi, I said that despite being horsemen, they were not a horse people. This is what I meant. The Goths could not compete because they were distracted by the realities of settled agrarian society. And as for the Romans, I'll just quote Thompson directly, the Romans could never produce such cavalrymen because they could not abandon their agricultural economy. To farm land, you occasionally have to get off the horse, and you will never, ever, then, match the skill of a Hun who spends almost all of his days in the saddle from the time he is born. Even the best trained cavalrymen of the Empire or of the Goths could not match the Huns because they had to be made while the Hun warriors were born. Part of those warriors' effectiveness depended on speed and flexibility, so armor was on the light side. They often carried shields, and as their contact with the Empire grew, they adopted those parts of Roman defensive armor they could get their hands on and were compatible. But mostly the greatest protection for a Hun horseman was his speed and maneuverability. In close combat, swords were used, often in tandem with an entangling lasso or net. Some examples of those swords have been found in burials, 
They are straight, rather than the curved saber that you would associate with later cavalry, and they're not particularly distinctive or of particularly high quality. The scale of metalworking that produces good, numerous swords is simply impossible in a nomadic population, so most or all of these swords were acquired by plunder or trade. The star of the show, though, as you probably know, was the bow. The hunbow was a shockingly powerful weapon used with unsurpassed skill and to devastating effect. Honestly, it's hard not to rhapsodize about the bow of the steps. Unlike a sword, a bow can be made from materials that are easily available to a steppe herdsman. Relatively short, it makes up for its size and its construction of laminated wood and bone held together with bone glue and reinforced with stays, also of bone, near the center grip. Sinew would provide the string, and animal grease keeps the whole thing limber. The exact nature of the hunbow is another matter of contention among some scholars, because of course it is. Some suggesting it was actually larger than other bows of the steppes, which made it even more powerful. Others point out that a longer bow would be awkward to use on horseback, to which others still respond that the problem would be solved by an asymmetrical design where the lower arm is shorter for the movement across the horse's neck. There are a few things more fascinating and irritating than a nitpicking debate between military historians. Or worse, between commenters on a YouTube video about military history. To me, what seems likely is that each tribe, or even each individual bowmaker, had their own style, and so it would be expected there would be variations in bow constructions across the horde. The modern idea of standardization was impossible and would have seemed absolutely bizarre to the people of the time. The point is, the bow was strong, 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 and it could be used with almost superhuman ability. There are stories about the horse archers of Genghis Khan being able to, at full gallop, put an arrow through the head of a marmot at 80 yards, and I see no reason why the Huns would be any less practiced. So let's imagine, then, that you're an infantry soldier in the Roman army, around, say, 397. The army is not what it was in the days of Augustus. Soldiers are mostly underpaid and tied to long terms of service without any guarantee of reward in the end. All the wars you fight in are either civil wars, which are depressing, or defensive, so they produce no spoils. A common soldier is a soldier because he has no better choices. He's most likely not a Roman, but a federate from an outside group, fighting to fulfill the terms agreed to by his leaders when they were allowed to settle inside the empire. His officers look down on him and treat him worse than their horses. He is not happy. And now he gets to face the Huns. They move across the field at will, at full gallop, keeping out of range of your bows, but well in range of their own, and unleash a hail of arrows that slices down among your companions, raining indiscriminate death on bone points. Sometimes they'll come in close and engage in hand-to-hand -hand fighting briefly, only to turn and appear to flee, but when you give chase, the ruse becomes clear as you're led into a trap and more arrows. It's all simply too much for our exploited and demoralized soldier, and defeat becomes inevitable. The worst part for our poor Roman soldier is that none of that is the scariest thing about the Huns. Next time, we'll talk about the Huns' transition from loose confederation to cohesive kingdom, how they began to function on the world stage not just militarily, but politically, how they began to learn new, scary skills from their contact with the Goths and Romans, and we'll explore the succession of leaders that took them through that transition, culminating, of course, 
and the one I have managed to not mention once in this episode until now, Attila. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you're enjoying the podcast. I would appreciate it muchly. Website still there, darkagespodcast.podbean.com and Twitter at darkagespod. The Instagram I mentioned is an option for your social media interactions and can be found under Dark Ages Pod. I'm going to be putting images there in addition to on the website if that is more convenient for you to look at them. Okay, I think that's everything. I was hoping to keep a regular weekly schedule, but as we head into the holidays, I'm not sure that's going to be possible. I'm still going to aim for an episode every week. I just can't guarantee what day it will fall on. Maybe I'll be able to be more predictable after the new year. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, take care.